As we endure the circumstances of the coronavirus pandemic and its repercussions on how we live our day-to-day, such as moving all schooling online and the recessive economy we're facing, we want to dive back into these conversations that we began in November of 2019 around the many factors that play into the future of work. We can use them as a foundation for navigating the changes amidst us now, as we learn what the new challenges are, and continue to partner and come together in their solutions as employers, policymakers, and educators. The core of our concerns and incentives remain the same. The equity barriers remain the same and are even more in need of addressing now, as the gap is susceptible to growing even bigger for those who might not have access to everything they need to continue their education during the shutdown of schools. So I hope you listen to these few episodes with a fine-tuned ear for what we can do now as we better learn to navigate this challenging and changing landscape. New episodes to feature interviews addressing our current situation and new projections regarding the future of work are in production and will be available in the coming weeks for your listening enjoyment anywhere you get your podcasts. The workforce landscape is rapidly changing and educators and their institutions need to keep up. Preparing students before they enter the workforce to make our communities and businesses stronger is at the core of getting an education. But we need to understand how to change and adjust so that we can begin to project where things are headed before we even get there. So how do we begin to predict the future? Hi, I'm Salvatrice Kumo, Executive Director of Economic and Workforce Development at Pasadena City College and host of this podcast. And I'm Christina Barsi, producer and co-host of this podcast. And we are starting the conversation about the future of work. We'll explore topics like how education can partner with industry, how to be more equitable, and how to attain one of our highest goals, more internships and PCC students in the workforce. We at Pasadena City College want to lead the charge in closing the gap between what our students are learning and what the demands of the workforce will be once they enter. This is a conversation that impacts all of us, you the employers, the policymakers, the educational institutions, and the community as a whole. We believe change happens when we work together, and it all starts with having a conversation. I'm Christina Barsi. And I'm Salvatrice Kumo, and this is The Future of Work. Hi, it's Christina, and today we have an amazing conversation captured in November of 2019 during Pasadena City College's first ever Future of Work conference. Featuring Erica Endrijones, the superintendent and president of Pasadena City College, who moderates this dialogue between policymakers and employers about how to build pathways to success for students and employers. Enjoy. Next on the agenda, we have our afternoon panel session titled Workforce Education Policy, Building Pathways to Success for Students and Employer. The panel would be uh, moderated by our own college president and superintendent, Dr. Erica Andrejanis. Please give her and the panelists a warm welcome. Awesome. Well, thank you, everyone, for being here. So I'm going to go down the line and have each one of our panelists introduce themselves. Sure. Hi, everyone. My name is Carolyn Tarosis, and I oversee economic and business development for L.A. County's Workforce Development Department, Workforce Development, Aging, and Community Services, for those who are familiar. And my background is really in economic and social mobility, and that's really what we're trying to do here as a system. I think we are trying to put our friends and neighbors into career pathways that help 
provide family-sustaining wages and improve communities. And I think all of us on our team are very passionate about our work. Before I came to WEDAX, I've been there for about a year, I was overseeing economic development and affordable housing for LA County CEO. And I think there's a real concerted effort amongst the Board of Supervisors to make sure that we're helping our client populations transition off of county safety net services and into family-sustaining careers. I'm a, a licensed attorney, and I've represented workers in cases of wage theft, and I came to the county initially to implement uh, the county's wage enforcement program and um, court-ordered mediation program. So really happy to be here and talk a little bit more about how we're partnering with education, with our workforce development system, and with really with industry is what we're very focused on in our department. Good afternoon. I'm Jessica Kukim. I'm the Senior Director of Workforce Development at the Los Angeles County Economic Development Corporation and also here on behalf of the Center for Competitive Workforce, one of the regional strong workforce funded projects by the Los Angeles Region Community Colleges. My background is just really doing demand-driven workforce development programs. Good afternoon. I'm Marty Alvarado. I'm the Executive Vice Mm -hmm. Chancellor for Educational Services at the California Community College Chancellor's Office. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> okay. Okay. Wonderful. So for the first question, is for, I'm going to have each of the panelists talk a little bit about what is the right model of workforce development for a community college? What is the right model that we should be looking at? That feels like a very loaded question. Um, <laughs> I don't know that there is a single model. For workforce development, I think there have been a number of innovations and efforts that have that have sprung up through the investments over the years across our community colleges. What I would say is that a couple of characteristics of models that I don't think will be a surprise to anyone in this room is obviously it needs to be industry-driven and closely partnered with industry. But I think the other things that I would point to is that models that are adaptive, that are continuously improving, because what we know is that the labor market and the jobs and even the situation of employers will not remain static. So how are programs designed to intentionally adapt as they move forward and as they progress. And then models that are really thinking about the wages and what role we play in employer advocacy or advocacy with employers, I should say, around increasing wages for occupations that we know are in demand and how we really think about bringing in ecosystems of partners, community agencies, uh, state organizations that can really help support this advocacy for increased labor. I think increasingly as our economy changes, we have to really be thinking about what are employment conditions and what's the social employment contract for workers and how we think about integrating those elements into our programs. I would completely agree with what she said. First, data-driven. So we saw the great data that was up there, but data is only good as you use it, right? So if we aren't focusing on the middle-scale occupations that are coming, that are in demand, that are growing in our region, but we're making the investments in our lower wage, lower scale opportunities, then it's a disservice. So I would say, one, start with the data. Two, it has to be industry driven. So oftentimes we uh, create credentials, we create pathways with employers are not at the table. And then it's, here's a program we created for you. Just like in education and workforce, we wouldn't like that. I'm sure our employer partners also wouldn't like that. So it has to be industry driven. And last word, I would just say, 
we need to think about the success marks that we're trying to accomplish. So if it is that pathway into employment, how is that reverse engineered and built in collaboratively? So we talked about housing, we talked about all these other issues. So including our seven workforce development boards in the region, including our adult education, our K through 12, our community-based organizations to come in and be a partner for student success, I would say is also an important piece of that. And I would, I would echo these comments, but I would also say we know that we are in theoretical full employment, and I think this has probably already been talked about today. The individuals who are coming through the public workforce system are those with multiple barriers. So I think we have shifted in this economy to be serving individuals in a very holistic way, partnering with our community-based organizations. Now, how does that pertain to a better partnership with community colleges, though, and what's the right model for them? I think that we can always do a better job of bringing the community colleges to the table at the beginning of when we're creating these programs and also bringing the workforce development boards to the mm-hmm. table to leverage that funding so that we're not in silos in the programs that we're developing. Um, I think since I've been at WEDEX, we've really engaged with the employers first to figure out, okay, what is it that you need? Where is your gap? And then how can we bring in the community college and really in, in theory, it would be an organic partnership where we're bringing industry, workforce, and the colleges together at the outset and training individuals for jobs that are already open and available to them because the individuals that we are seeing in the workforce system have multiple and multiple barriers and they need those wraparound services. And I think it's fair to say that the workforce investment system, we owe all of that, really is designed for an ongoing relationship between Absolutely. the workforce investment boards and the community colleges. It's supposed to be in all of our plans. It's supposed to be tied to strengthening workforce. And I think that that is something that we've been dealing with, actually dating back to when I was a career technical dean back in about 2007 or so. There was a big push statewide for community colleges and workforce investment boards to work together, so much so that, you know, every one of our conferences, our California Community College Occupational Educators Conference, we had to have workforce investment board representatives there, and we needed to have a plan, and we needed to do all these things We didn't do it, which is why we're still talking about it 10 years later. So I think it's definitely a place where we could improve. And I think if we could crack that nut, it would be huge. And I think that we really want to partner with labor in doing a lot of this work. Mm -hmm. I I mean, maybe we'll get to that discussion. But if we are trying to begin with the end in mind, we know that there is organized labor who has a pipeline of, of, of career pathways that have a pension and benefits and will help upskill and upwage our individuals that we're working with. So I think um, to the extent we can, working with those employers that have those opportunities and labor has always been a great partner of ours. You know, again, I'm going to go back on, to my experience. And we struggled with this 10 years ago. I think we're still struggling with it, especially with our last speaker. But the question I have is, why are we still struggling to understand what credentials are relevant to industry? And I'm going to couch that a little bit in the fact that we have two pushes going on in the state of California. One is we really want people to get degrees. We want them to get degrees. We want them to transfer or go into the workforce, depending on what that degree is in. But then we have certificates. We have skills competency awards. We have all those kinds of things. And in some ways, we really haven't done a great job capitalizing on those. So what is your thought? Why are we still struggling with that? I would say one is education. So, you know, I'm sitting there with a group of employers in bio. 
and we're talking about the community college talent that's coming out. And they tell me, oh, we don't hire them because they don't do lab hours. I was like, what do you mean they don't do lab hours? Let me pull up the website and show you exactly how many lab hours they're doing. And it was this revolution for those employers in the room to understand what is being taught. If you haven't walked onto a community college in 10 years, it looks completely different. And it was interesting for the employers when we looked at the hours, it turned out some of our community colleges are getting more lab hours than our university partners because the way the community colleges are structured. So I would say one, how do we regionally and collectively educate employers? And I would say then too, how do we collectively engage? It's Mm -hmm. great that Donald with Kaiser is here, but how do we ask Kaiser to keep coming to 21 community colleges, seven mm-hmm. workforce development boards, 81 K through 12 school districts. No employer wants to engage across all of those mm-hmm. individually. It would literally take a meeting a day for the entire year. It's too much. But also when they engage, how do we show them that their intelligence that they shared was infused directly into the credentials, infused directly into curriculum mm-hmm. and updated in real time? We need policies. We need support so that our curriculum can be updated like this, in business time, in real time? And how do we create that? So some of the work that the LA Community College is funded is funding that regional engagement. Last year, we convened the four largest public accounting firms with the community colleges to sit around a huge executive conference room and talk about these things. We need to make it seamless for industry, but we also then need to show them that return on investment. I couldn't agree more in terms of the education component. I think about a concept that has been floated around called the big blur between often it's referencing Mm -hmm. K-12 and community college, high school and community college. But I also think, how are we thinking about blurring the lines? Uh, I think as folks were talking about earlier, between where learning happens and where we're documenting learning and how we're documenting learning to really honor the experiences and the application. I feel like I need to say my degrees are in philosophy, but I spent a couple of decades (laughs) on the workforce side in community college. And when I think about where the economy is going, what employers are looking for. It is this blending of higher order thinking skills, complex problem solving, as well as the application. And what students are really looking for is a way to dig into the relevancy early on. Mm -hmm. And so how are we thinking about blurring the lines and where are those conversations? The conversation we were having on the way over here was also how focused we get on creating programs as opposed to solving problems. Mm -hmm. Um, And so how, when we think about this blurring of the lines, what problems are we trying to solve relative to teaching and learning and education and workforce and employment? And how do we see those things as complex and interchangeable and the intersectionality of those and what that means for how we design instruction, teaching, learning, and employment trajectories? And that has to be driven by employers. So the -hmm. professional development We need funding to allow our faculties, our teachers, our career advisors to go out and talk with employers and sit with employers. You can tell last week, we're down the street at Takeda, they had 15 department managers all talking about their workforce needs. And the 13 faculty in the room were furiously taking notes. And we're going to go back to them with an ask. But it's that type of regional engagement that allows faculty I can't tell you how many times in digital media and entertainment a faculty gets to go out on a company tour and they learned an occupation they were teaching to no longer exists and they left Mm -hmm. the industry three years ago. So we also need to invest in education. We need employers at the table to open their doors, to invest in that time because we do see a shift. We see a shift in foundations funding private entities 
to solve the education gap. We see employers opening up their own schools. They invest a ton in their internal training. So if community colleges are to remain relevant, especially in a market that has a lot of forces, threats, and opportunities right now, we got to take a look at the upskilling as well of the professionals who are delivering the career advice, delivering the training. I would agree with that. And I would just add, I, we've met with employers, specifically in digital media, who are literally running their own training programs, paying for them themselves, not leveraging their partners in the community colleges or the workforce system. And, and to me, that's a failure. I think through policy, we need to incentivize business engagement first. We need to incentivize forward-thinking innovation in terms... And that's why I really love this conference, The Future of Work, right? We can't mm-hmm. think about what jobs are here today. We also need to be thinking about what jobs are going to be here five years, ten years. And we need to be working that in to our curriculum in the community colleges. I also think we need to change the mindset amongst employers, like you mentioned, Jessica, around accepting these credentials as value-added and not having the stigma around you must have a four-year degree. I think a lot of the people that we're training, we're training them specifically for work, and they have the skills that are much more transferable than, you know, for example, a philosophy degree... In a, yeah. in a four-year university. Or a history just, degree. Right, or, or political science. Yeah. That's what I studied. And I can tell you when, when I yeah. exited law school, no one was trained to actually be right. a lawyer. Exactly. You get all of the training on the job. So if we have individuals participating in these programs in college, that needs to be value-added for these employers. And I think just having that conversation with everyone at the table is what we need to be doing. That's why they call it the practice of law. Yeah, and then I guess the yeah. question is, How do we say, like, all of us here together are going to work on systemic change? What are we going to do Mm -hmm. when we come back to this conference next year to say Mm -hmm. we've worked on this and we're coming forward, you know, with a to-do list? Right. It's almost like we need a brand new version of a DACOM analysis of every single one of our... I know, I'm going back some years. I know that. But it's almost like we need to do that, kind of break the entire thing down to build it back up. And part of it goes with, I think I mentioned this earlier today, that we have a culture that's really pushing on everybody needs a degree, and we, and we value that, you know, and I think if you look at the earning potential for people, even if, even regardless of what level of degree it is, if it's a high school diploma, if it's an associate degree, if it's a bachelor's degree, but in that, we keep also signaling how important these credentials are, how important this value added, the idea of a value added certificate is really important, but it's only important if industry recognizes it and if industry hires people who have that on their resume and doesn't say, oh, I don't see an an associate degree here. I see these credentials. And that gets back to the comments that were made or the research that was offered about stackable credentials, which are in some ways, especially depending on the industry, as valuable as somebody who has earned a degree. And what we have to do is get away from the idea that I'm a heretic for saying that at an institution that grants degrees. And I think we need to, you know, move to that. So I'm going to change directions just a tiny bit. So right now, industry is experiencing significant external pressures. There's a lack of housing, there's increased traffic, regulatory burdens. How does that weigh in on the policy approach to workforce development? Yeah, I mean, I think that we... I can just tell you what we've done from the from the county's perspective. The county has raised the minimum wage. The state has raised the minimum wage. The cost of labor is, generally speaking, the most expensive cost for most of these businesses. We have taken this proactive approach to educating 
the business community about all of the different incentives that they can avail themselves of if they work with our public workforce system. We've brought some of our community college partners to the table to offer non-credential training at no cost to our participants. Now, how do we help incentivize individuals who might be in a minimum wage job then also upskill and upwage by going into a training program for a better job or a career pathway Mm -hmm. when they don't have any sort of stipend to participate in that training program. So another thing I think that we've done from a policy perspective is really advocate for stipends for individuals as they're participating in training programs. And I know, we know that WIOA, the Workforce Innovation Opportunity Act, does not pay for that. However, there's a lot of new flexible sources of funding either coming down from the governor, coming down from Measure H at the county, using those funds in a flexible way to help individuals realize, hey, you know, I might be in a dead-end minimum wage retail job, but there are opportunities for me here you know, we started a program to get individuals in, with barriers into county employment. And I think destigmatizing some of the individuals that are experiencing these barriers. So, working, for example, on our countywide fair chance hiring campaign, going to businesses and letting them know look, there are business incentives. There are actual individuals who will walk in. Some of them are here. I see Michael in the back. I see some of our BSRs around the room, literally sitting with the business and walking them through all of the different tax credits, Mm -hmm. um, subsidized wages, bonding assistance, et cetera, that they can use. And then also, I think we have this jobs housing imbalance, obviously, and you're talking here about what can we do from a policy perspective. So we've really been looking at putting the, for example, rapid rehousing system in collaboration with the workforce development system, because a lot of the people coming through the workforce development system are housing insecure. Now, we can put them into a job and stabilize them in a job, but if they're not stabilized in housing, that is a problem, and it's a problem that we're seeing more and more frequently. So working, Philly and Sell Over Homeless Initiative has put together a homeless and employment task force, really looking at that from a policy perspective as well, marrying the two, and like I mentioned earlier, wraparound services for the whole person, not just an individual service. And I could go on, but I, I won't <laughs> ramble. Yeah, no, I would echo the same thing in terms of bring your partners to the table. There needs to be funding for this class. Collaborative work. There needs to be a sense of partnership. So if you're a community college like here, do you know Foothill has one of the best foster youth programs in the region? They work with a ton of foster youth. They have a ton of community-based organizations working with them. Could we leverage their resources, leverage their expertise so that your staff aren't overwhelmed? These are systems that have been built over decades that have established these relationships and have figured out how to leverage their funding and get creative and put it to work. And so I would say between your community-based organizations, your workforce development boards, you need to partner. I would put an exclamation point next to partnerships Uh and everything that was actually just said. I think two things I might add just from a tactical, practical focus for the community colleges is our board of governors has actually requested that we commission a study, fund and commission a study on trying to understand the housing challenges across our institutions, both for our students and for our workforce. Mm Community colleges have more than 90,000 employees across our system. We, in many communities, we are the largest economic driver, economic engine for the community in the region, and we tend to lose sight of that at times. And then the other component of this that we're also really focused on is increasing financial aid for students and covering the full cost of college, including housing, food, childcare, all the other components. Yes, definitely. 
So here's another piece of the puzzle. How is a lack of common language or nomenclature creating barriers to effective industry and academic government partnerships? For example, when we say soft skills, what does that actually mean? And is that the same as business intelligence or mindset? And are we all really on the same page or not? How about that? Find out what the panel thinks about these terms like soft skills, mindset, and business intelligence next week when we pick up where we left off and we get to hear from the audience and their thoughts and concerns regarding pathways to success. See you next week. Thank you for listening to the Future of Work podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd love to hear from you too. Leave us your thoughts and review and remember to rate us. Thanks for listening.